Ephesians 4, again, still, if you're thinking we're going to be in the second half of Ephesians for a while, you're probably right. There's so much here, so much that's vitally important and timely. In fact, there's so much just in our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. We're actually going to let it spill into a second week. So this morning is going to be the beginning of a two-parter. Ephesians chapter 4. The church, you've probably heard this one. The church has been compared to a family of porcupines. The colder it gets out there, the more we draw together. But the more we draw together the greater the tendency we have to hurt each other, like porcupines do. I wish that were less true. But most of you, this is not your first church. Most of you, at some point, most of us, have been part of a church where that was really, really true. Where the closer people got, the more they hurt each other. And the thing is, I think that would be a lot less true in a lot more churches, if a lot more people in our churches committed themselves to a careful study of this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because the theme of Ephesians, in many respects, is unity in the body of Christ. I've been told more than once, and I was told just the other day, sometimes I teach like a matador. I take something, I kind of poke at it, and then I'll go over here and poke it from this side, and then I'll come over and poke it from the other side, and then I'll get in front and stab it from the front, and I, I, I guess the idea is until it eventually falls over dead. I'm not sure how the story ends, but that's probably going to be true today, and it's, it's definitely for, true for Paul on a lot of days. Paul's got a way of taking a subject and just coming at it from every conceivable angle. Not just here, but in most of his letters, most of the time, he takes something and he looks at it this way and that way and under and over and around and through. And, and so far, the subject that he's been scrutinizing from every conceivable angle, here in Ephesians, so far the subject has been unity. He started, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, he started talking about unity between the church and God. Unity between God and the church. So the unity that Jesus made possible, the unity that Jesus purchased on the cross. The unity that we enjoy when we say yes to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When we ask for forgiveness based on the cross. When we acknowledge Jesus, you, you died in my place. You paid, you paid my penalty for my sin. And because you did, now I get to enter into forgiveness. I get to enter into unity. I get to join God's forever family as one of his children. We were always God's creation, but only when we say yes to Jesus do we become his sons and daughters. So that was chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Unity between God and the church, between God and believers. And then bottom of chapter 2 into chapter 3, Paul shifted and he started talking about unity among believers, unity within the body of Christ. He started talking about unity between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, but by extension, he meant all kinds of unity among all kinds of believers, men, women, slave, free, because God who can unite Jew and Gentile is Paul's reasoning, 
God who can unite Jew and Gentile into one new creation called the church is God who can unite anybody. And he does. <laughs> Look around. Then turning to chapter 4, Paul does the whole thing all over again. He hits the same two points in the same order. He starts off talking about unity between God and the church and then unity among people in the church. But this time he's not speaking theologically. This time he's speaking very, very practically. He's speaking ministerially. Chapter 4, he starts talking about unity between God and the church in ministry. And that's what we talked about last week, if you remember. How true ministry, if it's going to be ministry must be done in unity with God the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how God's work has to be done God's way, in God's power, in God's timing, in God's character for God's glory. That was last week. This week, Paul is going to build on that idea, same way he did halfway through chapter 2, and he's going to tell us for ministry to be ministry, true ministry, spirit-filled, God-glorifying ministry. It has to be done not only in unity with God, but in unity with other believers. That's this week. Let's read our passage. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And he himself, God, gave some in the body of Christ to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That was one sentence. <clears throat> what did Paul just say in that one convoluted, run-on sentence that your English teacher would hand back to you marked up in red? It, it can be hard to follow Paul at times. Because the way he expresses himself, his form of argumentation, comes from an Eastern mind rather than a Western mind. It doesn't flow the, the way that we expect an argument, a line of reasoning to, to unfold. We're more used to hearing, here's a problem and here's why it's a problem. Here's a solution for the problem and how things will be better once we've solved the problem. See, that, that flows, doesn't it? Because it's what we're used to. That's not what Paul just did. That's not what Paul usually does. What he just did is he, he came in verse 11 and said, here's a solution. To what, Paul? Well, to a problem, but he doesn't get to it until verse 14. And then verses 15 and 16, but, but here's what we have to look forward to once the problem is solved. It, it kind of hurts your brain, right? Because it's not familiar. So let's rearrange things a little bit this morning and see if it helps us understand what Paul has to say. Because it seems important, even if we're not grasping all of the nuance, Seems like Paul's talking about something that's pretty important, and it is. It, 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 it's critically important. We have to get this if we ever hope to be effective witnesses of God's love and grace. So let, 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 let's rearrange what Paul is saying and see if it works a little bit better with our Western minds. 
let's see if we can walk away with a better understanding of what, what he's talking about with regard to unity in the church. In our minds, we, we go problem, solution, outcome. So let's do that. Verse 14, Paul talks about the problem. And he, and he actually talks about three problems. Three threats to unity in the body of Christ. The first is immaturity. Believers acting like children, verse 14. They're not contributing to the household of faith as adult, mature members. They're just making incessant demands. I want, I need. Why isn't it more like, why doesn't somebody, why? I want, I want, I need now. Can you clean up your room? Can you clear the table? <gasps> I'm tired. It's immaturity. It's childishness. There are those in the body of Christ who want to be fed, burped, wiped, changed, want, 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 which produces a lack of unity. Why? Because it divides the body into providers and consumers, givers and takers. Division. Second threat to unity Paul is calling out, still verse 14, he talks about instability. Those who refuse to look to God's word for the solution to life's problems, instead they're always looking for the newest trend, the latest fad. They allow themselves, Paul says, to be tossed to and fro from purpose-driven to emergent to progressive to missional to attractional to deconstructional. And it's not to say that those different schools of thought are, are devoid of any good ideas. But there's a difference between sifting for nuggets, you know, chewing the meat, spitting out the bones, and pinning all my hopes and dreams on the next new thing instead of the eternal, unchanging word of God. Why, why, why do we keep doing that? Because we're hoping the next new thing won't require obedience, <laughs> won't necessitate submitting to the hard work of sanctification. Spoiler alert, it always does. <laughs> But when the toss to and fro crowd come into the church, they're not saying, hey, I read a book. I heard a podcast. What if we, have we ever thought of, hey, so-and-so has an interesting perspective. What if we, no, the toss to and fro crowd comes in and says, we're doing everything wrong. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We need to change everything. Why? This book says so. And that's a threat to unity. Because, because immediately you, you, you're forced to either agree or disagree. You're, you're on one side or the other side. Third thing that Paul calls out, still verse 14, third threat to unity is gullibility. By the way, I'm stealing the, 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 the three-point outline, the mini-outline here from William McDonald, because it rhymes and I couldn't think of anything better. <laughs> but gullibility, being easily fooled, easily tricked, easily manipulated, susceptible to seduction by tricky teachers with deceitful doctrines. Using the same strategy as Satan that Pastor Robbie talked to us about a couple weeks ago. The strategy we saw Satan use when he took Jesus out into the desert. Concealing destructive lies with spiritual-sounding language. Taking Bible verses, twisting them out of context, sweetening them a lot of times with flattery. Not everyone's able to see these deeper things. Not everyone is as discerning as you are. Not everyone is willing to understand these hidden truths. But you are. And because you are, you, you'll have access to good things, wisdom, influence, power. Or 
you'll avoid the bad things, corruption, deceit, disaster. Either way, there's an, there's an urgency. Think about Eve. It didn't work on Jesus. It worked on Eve. You have to eat this apple, and you have to eat it now. And that wars with unity. So immaturity, instability, gullibility, all verse 14. All threats to the unity and integrity of the body of Christ. For now, one day, Paul says, go back to verse 13, one day, Paul says, we're not going to be concerned with these threats. These threats won't be threats. Why? One day we'll walk together, verse 13, in unity of the faith, with a perfect understanding of all of the doctrines that now confuse us and threaten to divide us. Predestination and free will, gifts of the Spirit, end times, prophecy, perfect shared understanding of every doctrine. Why? Because we'll have perfect understanding of Jesus. Perfect knowledge, Paul says, of the Son of God. We won't be, won't be squinting at Jesus as through a glass dimly anymore. We'll be gazing at him clearly, seeing him face to face, eye to eye, from our own perfected bodies that have been conformed into his image. One day. But unless Jesus returns for his bride today, that day won't be today. Please in Maranatha, Jesus, let it be today. But unless it is, today, verse 11, God is going to call and gift people to help us through this season. He's going to call and gift people, verse 12, to teach the body of Christ. He's going to call and give people, verse 15, to speak the truth in love so the church will stay close to Christ, verse 16, and grow closer to one another in Christ. Same verse. That's why Paul's talking about what he's talking about. That's why, verse 11, he brings up apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. Those four roles... Those four offices, those four functions exist within the church, functioning differently within the church, but with the same shared objective for the church, unity. I really hope rearranging is, is bringing more clarity than it is adding confusion. Because I'm, I'm, I really, we need to understand what Paul is saying, the big picture that he's trying to convey. Otherwise, otherwise we get lost in the details and we end up twisting Scripture and, and forcing it to confess to something that, that God never intended. And people do, with the best of intentions, people twist these verses. I don't know if you've seen verse 11, Ephesians 4 verse 11, used as the basis for a theology of leadership, but there's a bunch of different versions of it out there, most collected under the umbrella, fivefold ministry. Have you heard that? The idea is for the church to be successful, for a church to be God-honoring and biblically faithful, you need at least five key players on your leadership team. You need an apostle, which they reimagine as a church planter or a visionary or a pioneer of some kind. You need a prophet who's an exhorter, a preacher, speaking truth to people. You need an evangelist who's out there telling people about Jesus. You need a pastor who cares for the physical and spiritual needs of the body, and you need a teacher who helps impart a deep understanding of the word and, and the wisdom of the word. Which is an interesting concept. It's just huckleberry bad hermeneutics. <laughs> it's poor biblical interpretation. How so? 
I mean, a few different ways. First, and, and this is relatively minor, apostle doesn't exist today the way that it did in the early church. Apostle, the way that Paul is using the term, was an eyewitness of Jesus. We don't have those anymore. Second, pastor-teacher in verse 11 is not two roles, it's one. It's ambiguous in the English, I'll grant you. It's not at all ambiguous in the Greek. Greek scholars, this, 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 is, this is an example of the Granville Sharp rule. I have no idea what that means. I just say it because it sounds important. But, but two things equal to one thing in the Greek. There's a grammatical construction that signals that, and this is that. Not all teachers are pastors, all pastors are teachers, which Paul is underlining here for reasons that we'll get to. But the point is, right off the bat, the fivefold ministry has just lost a finger and a thumb, and we haven't even gotten to the big part yet. Most important thing is, is when we get to a Bible verse, we have to read it, we have to understand it, interpret it in the context, in the light of what the author is talking about. And in this passage, Paul is not instructing the church how to be the church, how to organize itself, how to lead itself. It's not his purpose remotely. He's not teaching about church leadership here. He's observing that in the church, God gifts and uses people differently. God calls people to different roles and offices, but with one shared purpose. This is what Paul is talking about. This is his point. Different roles, one shared purpose to build up the church, to promote unity in the church. If, if you're not confident in that, scroll up to what Paul said before he started saying what we're looking at. Scroll up above verse 11. He's talking about unity, right? And, and he's saying that in, in, in pursuing unity, that doesn't mean uniformity. We're not clones. We're not Stepford Christian. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't preclude rich diversity in the body of Christ. Diversity as in Jew and Gentile. Diversity as in different spiritual gifts. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given. Grace in context in the form of spiritual gifts. Verse 8, he ascended on high, led captivity captive, and gave gifts, spiritual gifts, to men. God has given us diverse gifts various callings because God really wants chaos and disunity in the body of Christ? No, God's a God of order. No, he gifts and calls people uniquely, individually, personally to use their gifts with one shared goal, the health and unity of the body under the headship of Christ Jesus. For example, that's how Paul tees up what he says in verse 11. Verse 11, he's saying in effect, for example... The church has different kinds of teachers. That's how we came up with this list. This is not an exhaustive list of all the roles in the church or even all of the spiritual giftings we see in the church. He came up with this list because it's examples of different kinds of teachers. Apostles have one emphasis, and it is a visionary emphasis. Prophets have, have an exhortational emphasis. Evangelists have a, have a Jesus focus. Shepherds have a body focus. But in their diversity... Each in their own way, they're pursuing unity and the health and strength that comes with unity. So now that we've taken it all apart, let's put it back together and see if it works. Now that we've, we've gone from the inside out, let's go from top to bottom. Verse 7 and 8, there's diversity in the body of Christ. We can see it. Look around. 
For example, verse 11, there are diverse kinds of teachers. Apostles, prophets, and so forth. Teachers who are needed, verse 12, to equip and edify and unify. Teachers needed, verse 13, because we don't see Christ clearly. We don't understand Scripture perfectly. And because, verse 14, we're human. We're immature, unstable, gullible. So we need, verse 15, teachers to speak the truth to us in love, in different ways, according to different callings. Why? Verse 15, so the church will grow closer to Christ. And verse 16, closer to one another in Christ. That, Paul is saying, is a healthy church. Which means a church in which those things are not true, a church in which those things are not happening, a church where that process isn't taking place is not a healthy church. And that seems kind of intuitively obvious. Well, a church where people aren't well taught, how healthy can it be? But if someone says, I don't know, I don't know that teaching is all of that. If you want to prove this to someone, you don't have to go far. Go ahead a chapter to chapter 6. Go ahead and glance ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll do a little preview of coming attractions here. When Paul talks about equipping... I don't know about you, but my mind goes to the armor of God in Ephesians 6 that, that Paul talks about. This is what we need to have. This is what we wanna, how we want to dress ourselves, how we want to arm ourselves to be equipped for the battle that we are in. What does he say? He says, stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. When Paul talks about equipping the saints, that's what he's talking about. How do we know those things? Because people have taught us. Girdle of truth. Breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, and our heavy artillery, prayer, our offensive weapon. Those are all things that collectively the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors have imparted to us. But even with all that, Paul is saying, but there's something more. There's an X factor. Even with all of that equipping, even with all of that armor and armament, all of that isn't enough. Back in chapter 4, after he talks about this diversity and the different ways in which different people equip us, he brings it back to unity and he says, you can be equipped as all get out, but it's, it's counterproductive, it's actually destructive without unity. Verse 15 and 16, he says, it's not enough for, for, for us to be well-trained soldiers for Christ. Whether we're, we're a, a squad of 10 or... Uh, a, a platoon of 20 or a company of 200, however many are in the fellowship, it's not, an, it's not about numbers, and it's not enough to be well-trained, well-equipped. We have to be operating as unity, functioning as one body under the headship of Christ. It, it, it's there in verses 15 and, and 16. It's, it's there implicitly in Ephesians 6 if you look for it. Because Paul is very deliberately evoking the image of the Roman soldier, the hardened warrior with, with shield and short sword, 
the weapons that Rome used to conquer the known world. The thing about those weapons, they're only effective if they're wielded by an army that's not just trained to fight, but trained to fight together. If I say Roman legions, what's the image that comes up in your mind? It's columns and rows of warriors with shield and sword standing shoulder to shoulder, row upon row with shield and spear. That that no one can that that a wall that no one can penetrate. That's the idea that Paul is evoking, the power that comes from unity. The problem is a lot of the body of Christ. I'm 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 going to be bold and say most of the body of Christ rejects that idea. This is where we should be pivoting, by the way, from interpretation to application. We've talked about what and so what, and this is where we should be turning to home and talking about now what? Except that we need to pause and consider the fact that a lot of the church rejects the so what that we've been talking about. If not in principle, then in practice. Talked a couple of weeks ago about how disunity among churches can be both both good and bad. It can help if we get together and worship together with people who have similar convictions, unity and doctrine and philosophy of ministry, so that we're not distracted by those things. But a strength overplayed is a weakness, and that unity can be a hindrance if we get tribal about it and start to believe that we're the only ones that God can bless and we're the only ones that God can use and we're the only true believers. I was talking to a pastor yesterday about John Wesley. And in doing so, I was reminded of a John Wesley quote. He said, I want the whole Christ for my Savior, the whole Bible for my book, the whole church for my fellowship, the whole world for my mission field, the whole church for my fellowship. The church of Jesus Christ is a big tent. If you doubt that, look around. If we're not willing to see the whole church as our fellowship, we're missing out on some of the richness and diversity and beauty that God has brought together to be his son's bride. But all of that said, there's, there's a kind of a disunity within a fellowship a body of believers that's, that's absolutely like-minded on soteriology and pneumology and eschatology and all the other ologies that can neuter it, that can render it ineffective and impotent, not growing, not loving, not making a difference for Jesus in the world. What am I talking about? The imaginary distinction that exists in a lot of fellowships between clergy and laity made-up partition between ministers on one side and members on the other. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors over here, everybody else over there. Completely fictitious. Entirely fraudulent. And it keeps the body of Christ from fulfilling its function, being witnesses of Christ Jesus to the world. Where does the idea come from in the first place, this clergy-laity distinction? Historically, we've got to look to the Roman Catholic Church, which it's, it's, it's simplistic and sloppy to lay all of the church's problems at the Catholic's feet. This one, it's kind of accurate. Because in the early days of the Roman Catholic Church, looking for a model to draw upon, to validate the consolidation of power they were pursuing they reach back to the Old Testament 
and formulated a system that was not based on the teachings of Jesus or the letters of Peter and Paul and John, but instead the Levitical priesthood. And instead of the blood of animals sacrificed for the remission of sin at the temple, it was the blood of Christ sacrificed again and again at Mass. That's, that's even the present day, the Roman Catholic concept of the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ being sacrificed daily for the remission of sin. A Mass presided over by priests and only by priests. Very, very recently, in my lifetime, specially appointed lay people, Eucharistic ministers, have been allowed to handle the host, the body, and blood. And I remember when that happened, when I was a young guy in a Catholic church. It was a scandal. <gasps> Someone who's not the right, that's not the priest. <laughs> because, because, because we've been trained to see this, this really clear but completely unbiblical delineation between clergy and laity, ministers and members. Members who have no other duty, I'm going to quote the Pope, not the current Pope, but in 1906, the duty of the church member is to let themselves be led and follow their pastors as a docile flock. Okay, some of you haven't gotten that memo. And that's a good thing. Now, if you wanted to argue the point, hey, hang on, Patrick, how is this unbiblical? Because there are delineations between leaders and followers. Paul, Paul draws a distinction between apostles and disciples. Jesus did too, for that matter. Paul recognizes elders in Ephesus and other places. He, he sends Titus to appoint elders in, in Crete. Yeah, all of that is true. But none of that wars with what, you know, what, what Paul is saying. He's saying that, yeah, people are given different roles. Some of them are leadership roles. But what do we read about those leadership roles? Acts 2, we read about the entire church, apostles included, having all things in common. Worshiping God, not you over here and me over here, but with one accord. 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13, we read exhortations. Yeah, respect those in leadership. But, but 1 Peter 5, the same passage that exhorts, hey, respect those in leadership, exhorts those in leadership, don't be jerks. Don't lord over those that you lead. Serve with Christian humility. Serve. Take the last place. Love. Wash feet. It's interesting, those leading in the New Testament are never referred to as priests. The only evangelist who is referred to as an evangelist is who? Anybody? Philip is correct. And Philip is a deacon, not an elder. So he's not in a leadership position per se. Prophets were never referred to as having authority in the church. What's the point? The point is that, yeah, the Bible teaches that each local fellowship is to be organized and structured and taught and led, not by priests who are above everybody else, but by people gifted and called by God who serve alongside everyone else. Everyone else who is likewise serving in their gifting, in their calling. Some fellowships consolidate that in, in, into a slogan and they say, every member a minister. Which is a little cutesy. But, but, it, but it's exactly right. It's what Paul is telling us as a mark, verse 15, of a healthy biblical church. 
So what are the pastors and evangelists and prophets and, and, and teachers, what are they doing in this healthy biblical church? Equipping the saints. Teaching each in their own way what it is to be the body. What it is to love and serve each other. Shouldn't be confusing. It's here in black and white, and it's not just here, but it's all throughout the New Testament. Again and again, the one anotherness of the body of Christ, the whole body of Christ. Everybody included, nobody excluded. How did we get so messed up <laughs> where we ended up with this imaginary distinction between so-called clergy and everyone else? Again, it's easy to point at the Catholics, but we've had Protestant churches for 500 years, <laughs> and, 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 and there are plenty of, of Protestant churches that ordain people for the work of the ministry, hire staff for the work of the ministry, outsource to qualified professionals the work of the ministry, if none of that works, give it to the interns. <laughs> We're guilty too. What's interesting, the idea got so deeply rooted in church culture that the earliest translations of the Bible into English, the King James and the Geneva Bible being examples, codified this error, and it went undetected for, for well after the Reformation. Take a look again at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. In the King James, and I'm sorry I don't have PowerPoint this morning. In the King James, picture this. It, it reads, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So read that way, it sounds like the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors have three distinct jobs perfecting, teaching, the saints, job one, edifying the body, encouraging the body, job three, and in between, job two, doing the work of the ministry. So there it is. Get going, Patrick. Take Rob with you. Get her done. James, you can come too. Except it's a bad translation. It's not even a little bit what Paul is saying. And virtually every modern translation agrees. New King James, NASB, ESV, NLT, NET, CSB. They all put it slightly differently. But the idea they're all conveying, God gave these gifts to be used by teachers to prepare the body to serve that the body would make the church stronger. How does something like that go uncorrected for so long? It's easy if, if it's what you're expecting to see. If that's what the big Roman told the little Roman who told us. It's easy if it's what you expect to see. And, and get this, it's easy if it's what we want to see. James Montgomery Boyce makes this point, and I think he's spot on. We can blame the Catholic Church all we want, but there's a part of us that wants this division to be true. There's a part of us that really desires for this, this divide to be real. It goes back to what Paul said about immaturity. Pastors, teachers, leaders, in our pride, there's a part of us that wants to lord over the flock. If that wasn't true, Peter wouldn't have to remind us not to. If it wasn't true, John wouldn't have to call out Diotrephes in 3 John saying, oh, Diotrephes loved to be first. <laughs> no, there's a part of every pastor that's prideful and carnal and sinful and wants to do the work, 
wants to carry the weight, wants to ride in on the white horse and be the hero. And there's a part of those who aren't pastors, the selfish, carnal, sinful part, who wants to let them. John Stott, Anglican pastor and theologian of the 20th century, quoting one of his contemporaries, what does the layman really want? He wants a building that looks like a church, clergy dressed the way that he approves, services of the kind that he's been used to, and to be left alone. So when the carnal nature in the pulpit lines up with the carnal nature in the pews, it's easy to see how that schism emerges. You stay in your side of the line, I'll stay on my side of the line. You operate in your sphere, I'll operate in my sphere, nobody gets hurt. Except everybody gets hurt. Because <laughs> it's not God's design for the church. Paul just gave us God's design. Translated correctly, read through spiritual eyes. Paul just told us, God gifts pastors and teachers who teach and equip the body to love and serve and build one another up as the world looks on, watching and learning what it is to follow Christ. Understand, Paul isn't anti-pastor. Some people get this far and they say, well, then why do we need pastors? If, we're, if pastors aren't supposed to be priests, then why do we need pastors at all? Or when people see pastors who abuse their role, who abuse, their author, who abuse people. Well, that's the problem with pastors, and we need to not have pastors, and throw them all out. It, it's, it's, un, it's an understandable reaction, but not biblical. Because again, all through the New Testament, we read about pastors and elders. Paul appoints them in the churches that he plants. He recognizes them in the churches that he doesn't. He directs Titus to appoint them, sends Timothy to correct them. He sets forth qualifications for them, and when we get to Revelation, Jesus writes letters to them. The answer isn't doing away with pastors. The answer is everyone, including maybe not especially pastors. I was going to say maybe especially. No, especially pastors, having a right understanding of the role. Sports analogy. My friend Robert is celebrating the 58th straight Super Bowl that did not end in a Vikings victory. <laughs> Church has sometimes been compared to a football team. 22,000 spectators who could really use some exercise and 22 guys on the field who could really use a rest. <laughs> I've used the analogy before, and, and so have a lot of people, but that's, that's 180 degrees the wrong way to look at church. A couple dozen people on the field, pastors, worship leaders, teachers, ushers, tech crew, out there playing the game while everybody else watches and cheers? That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is the one that Paul is giving here, is the one where pastors and elders and leaders are coaches. And torture the analogy, there's different kinds of coaches. Kansas City Chiefs had an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator and a quarterback coach and a tight ends coach and, and, and guys who broke down film and, and, and they had trainers specializing in, in, you know, taping ankles and ice baths. And there's different kinds of pastors and leaders with different roles and different specialties. But the shared role is to prepare the team, which is the body, for the game, which is out there. 
Loving God and loving others. Not battling each other. Not battling other churches. Battling the world and sin and Satan. And battling the world and sin and Satan together. Everyone on the same page. Everyone understanding their role. Everybody drilled on the game plan. Everyone playing their part. Everyone knowing who they're playing for. Before there was Andy Reid, the Kansas City Chiefs had a coach named Herman Edwards. Wasn't their most successful coach. But he was... He was fond of saying something that, that really applies. He was fond of saying the key to winning is forgetting the name on the back of the jersey and playing for the name on the side of the helmet. Forgetting individual, remembering team. The name of our team, the name on our helmet of salvation, Jesus. Jesus. If football isn't your thing, you can get the same place with, with virtually anything else. Music, back in the 90s, my business partner's wife was an opera singer. And, and everyone was gaga over the three tenors at the time, everybody in the opera world, and, and because his wife was in that world. Pavarotti and Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras, and, 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 and there, I remember an interview with one of them, and I don't remember which it was. But they were asked, don't you get competitive you know, individually, you're the greatest in the world, but here you are sharing a stage. Aren't you tempted to, you know, flex and, and try to outshine each other? And they said, not if we keep it about the music. And we always keep it about the music. Just like we always need to keep it about Jesus. Pastors, elders, coaches, training, teaching, building the church up in Jesus. The congregation, including the coaches, were player coaches, out on the field, living our lives, loving and serving Jesus. The spectators are the people watching, the people out in the world, the people at work and school in our neighborhoods and our families, our friends, people in our lives watching us love and serve Jesus, watching us trust and depend on Jesus, watching us worship and rejoice in Jesus. How do we do that? Practically, concretely, Tactically, that's next week. I said we were going to have to make this two parts. Why? Because, because we had to get to the interpretation and we had to get to all of the ways that, that people have tried to pervert and twist and misunderstand and misapply that interpretation. Having done that next week, we're going to talk about how do we live this. We did the what, we did the so what, next week we're going to get to the now what. If you want to get ready for that, Told, told the guys, men's ministry, if you want to get ready for, for Monday, read the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. High school guys, if you want to get ready for next Saturday for the young men's study, read up on Jacob and Esau, the, the next brothers we're going to be looking at together. If we want to get together and get ready for, for next Sunday, read up on what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. And Pray about your gift, your calling? Do you know what it is? Has the Lord shown that to you? If you're not sure, who are the mature believers in your life that you might kick this idea around with? Hey, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you see as my gift or gifts? What do you think God made me to be? What, 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 what do you think my role is in the body of Christ? We'll come together next week and we'll, get talk, we'll talk about it. And we'll get really concrete.
And if I didn't say it before, I'll, I'll say it now. And pray. Because God knows you better than you know you. And ask him to show you. And we'll come together and we'll see what to do with the answers. Lord, thank you that we don't have to wonder if we are gifted. You tell us that everyone has a spiritual gift. We don't have to shrug our shoulders and ask ourselves if we're called. You've told us that we all are. We all have gifting and calling. Father, thank you. We don't have to serve to prove anything. We serve to honor you, but not to get you to love us more. You love us perfectly. Thank you that you have good works that you've prepared for each one of us to walk in. And thank you, Lord, that you've brought us together to walk out those works and to fulfill that ministry together, loving and serving one another, glorifying you with our lives.